You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we come to the end of our Sola series looking at our final Sola, which is... Glory, Sola Dea Gloria, or just SDG, to God alone be the glory. This describes the why behind everything, and I mean everything. The why behind salvation, the why behind creation, all that Paul describes in the previous chapters in Romans, the why behind all that God has made and all that God does, the very reason for our existence, it is all to the glory of God. Psalm 72 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And this is why we're here. This is the, the, the like deal. What is this all about? The glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this often quoted question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, that's a fancy way of asking, what is the point of life? What is the deal with all this? Why do you have the life that you've been given? Why do you have the opportunities and the abilities and all that you have in your life? And most importantly, if you're a Christian today, why has God chosen to rescue you from sin and to reconcile him and reconcile you to himself? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mark Twain once famously said the two most important days of your life is the day that you are born and the day that you find out why. I don't mean to sound like extreme today, but this could be the day you find out why. Sole Dea Gloria resolves the why. Why am I here? Why my life? Why this body? Why these emotions? Why this personality? Why am I experiencing this? Why all the good? Why all the hard stuff in my life? Why the joyful? Why the painful? Why the beautiful? Why the broken? Well, the Bible tells us clearly it is all to the praise of God's glory. Amen? So um, if you're a note taker today, it's going to be a little bit different. So just try to track with me. We're going to answer two big questions and then sort of break it down as we go. What is glory? kind of an important question to ask because we talk about it all the time but like what is glory and then secondly why is God alone worthy of it fair enough so what is glory well it's a word that's used in the old testament it's used in the new testament we sing it in every worship service I would bet my life that we will sing it at some point today it's a word that's used often in Christian sort of jargon glory 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 but what is glory well it's honor 
its majesty, its renown. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees this beautiful vision of God in his throne room and the, temp- and the train of his robe fills the temple and angels are crying out, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. So glory is somehow connected to the majesty in the reign of God. So first you could say that glory describes God's sovereignty. But it's also described as brilliance and brightness and radiance. In the book of Exodus, Moses is summoned up on Mount Sinai and he goes before the Lord and he says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, not so fast, that's not going to happen or you will die, but I will show you my backside and as I pass by you, I will proclaim to you my everlasting name. And just seeing the backside of the Lord and the pronouncement of his name, Moses comes down and his face is glowing, so much so that he has to veil it because people are forever creeped out. So secondly, glory describes splendor. But also, glory is substantial. It's not just ethereal and abstract. It is substantive. In the Old Testament, we're told that when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, it was like a thick cloud that was so dense that the priests couldn't even stand and minister in the midst of it. So glory means the weightiness or the heaviness of something. It's the value that we ascribe to something based on its worth or substance like weighing pure gold. And so this is what glory is. Therefore, to glorify or to ascribe glory means to recognize and praise something for its worth and for its importance. And put this way, we are all glorifying something today. J.R. Vassar put it this way, we are hardwired to ascribe glory and praise to what we deem impressive. Giving glory is a natural human response to witnessing greatness, which is why our world is infatuated with celebrities, by the way. We are addicted to greatness, and when we see it, we ascribe worth and value to it. Everybody is glorifying something. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not today. You are glorifying something. The question is, who or what are you ascribing glory to? Now, a few years ago, the New York Times published an article titled, How Everything Became the Highest Form of Praise. How Everything Became the Highest Form of Praise. Do you remember this? like trend five or six, seven years ago, time is relative now, but like fill in the blank is everything. You remember this? This photo is everything. This article, piece of article, you know, article of clothing is everything. This song is everything. This kitchen gadget on Amazon is everything. Now these are obviously trivial examples, but we, we say things like my family is everything to me. Or or how about this? My children mean everything to me. Getting this job means everything to me. This opportunity that I've been working for my entire life, this goal means everything to me. So how do you know that you are glorifying something in your life? It's when you determine that you cannot live without it. It's when something, and typically a good thing, becomes in everything, which, by the way, the Bible describes as the sin of idolatry. When, as in our confession, the creature, the created thing, begins to take the place of creator in our lives. Isaiah 42, 
I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God is a giving God, but he refuses to share when it comes to his glory. But how quick we are to ascribe glory to things and how quick we are to receive glory from others. There's a passage in the book of Acts that tells us this, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to the people. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And it felt so good. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the what? And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Don't kill the messenger, man. <laughs> now, for some, the order will be like Herod. You die and then you're eaten by worms. But other of, uh, others of us who are willing to receive the glory, it's reversed. We are dying inside until the day that we finally die. This is serious business. God alone, the glory is not just an empty theological idea from Protestant history. This is the only way to live. And so if you were to adopt a mantra for your life, the reason for your living, the reason for your creating and working and loving and raising a family and pursuing your goals, I want to strongly urge you to make it this, to God alone be the glory, because it is the way that we protect our hearts from idolatry. It is the way that we um, resist receiving and keeping the glory for ourselves. And really, it is the way of ensuring that God is the only one that receives the highest praise in our lives. To God alone be the glory. So the second question we're looking at is then why? Why is God alone worthy of the glory? Look at me in verse 33. You guys still with me? You knew it was coming. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Oh, the depths. This is a moment that many commentators believe as Paul is sort of dictating and a scribe is writing. Paul goes on this praise tangent. He can't help but just have this outburst of praise when he thinks about all that God has done in his life and in this world. After he's just explained this mysterious plan of salvation that he has brought together through his son, Jesus Christ, how he has brought both Jews and Gentiles into one family, God has done the impossible through Jesus Christ, and he cries out, oh, the depths. The depths pictured here are like a storehouse of abundance. I want you to visualize this in your mind. A never-ending source of grace and mercy and healing and empowering and forgiving and reconciling and restoring goodness for undeserved people like us. A depth of richness, a depth of wisdom, a depth of knowledge that is so vast, so limitless, that no one could reach the bottom. No one could discover the end of what God is capable of doing. No one could discover the end of what God is willing to do in your life. 
So then the million dollar question for us today is, then why do we struggle to glorify him? If this is true, why do we struggle to glorify God like we ought to? Think about this. Maybe it's because we see God as small and shallow. I'm recognizing that I believe that one of my primary jobs as a preacher of God's word is to continually put before the church the greatness and the vastness of God over and over and over and over and over again. And here's the reason, because every single day there are things that are contending for our attention, convincing us, no, this is a big deal. No, this is a big deal. No, this is everything. No, this is everything. And when everything is a big deal, nothing, including God, is a big deal in our lives. I love the way J.B. Phillips put it. Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction. I mean, just take a quick assessment of your heart. Does this describe you just not satisfied? Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction or without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or as the old-fashioned would say, godless but because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. If it is true that there is someone in charge of the whole mystery of life and death, we can hardly expect to escape a sense of futility and frustration until we begin to see what he is like and what his purposes are. If you can't believe God, chances are your God is too small. If you struggle to glorify God with your whole life, chances are your God is too small. Oh, the depths. Verse 34 through 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The obvious answer is... Nobody. Who fits this description? Not a single person. Now, in in the time of this letter to the Romans, in the first century, it was not uncommon for people to worship and pay homage to gods that were dependent on people. In Greek mythology, Roman mythology, what you'll discover is that the gods created humanity out of need. And specifically so that the prayers and the devotion of people would sort of fuel um, their immortality. So it's this reciprocal relationship. I make you, but I need from you. We give and we take. There's this ebb and this flow between humanity and the gods. And in a relationship with a God that needs us, then we exist to be exploited. I don't know everyone in this room, and I'm very hesitant to speak on anyone's behalf, but I think I can confidently say no one here wants to be exploited. It's probably one of our deepest fears, especially when we come into church. That will always be the result of a religion that worships a God of need. You will be exploited sooner or later. And so as long as we think that God needs us in any way, In any way, 
He needs our worship. He needs our love. He needs our contribution. He needs our money. He needs our evangelism. He needs us out there doing PR to sort of like, you know, kind of work over the Old Testament God stuff. He needs us out there. Then we will not be someone that seeks to glorify him with our lives. He will not be someone that we deeply desire to praise. He will be someone that we are constantly trying to appease. He'll be the person that we wake up thinking is deeply disappointed in us. He'll be the person that we forever live trying to get him off of our back. He will be a liability to your freedom and your flourishing. You will not desire to glorify a God that needs you. But I know that it's difficult to even imagine a relationship that's not at least a little bit based on mutual need. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I love you, you love me. We give and we take. And we all carry within us this like deep insecurity in all of our relationships, even the happiest long-term marriages, with this nagging sense that the moment that I'm no longer useful, the moment that I'm no longer needed, the moment that I'm no longer the funny one or contributing or beautiful or strong or smart or healthy or sane, then I'm going to be discarded. Someone else better is going to take my place. But the gospel tells us that God created us and redeemed us out of love. Don't bring and import your ideas of love on this idea, but out of biblical, God-centered love that is self-giving, completely sacrificial, and needs nothing from us. That kind of love. In 1425, a monk painted a piece of art called the Icon of the Holy Trinity. Can you see it up there? It's based on this angelic visitation that you read about in um, Genesis chapter 18, where these three angelic hosts appear to Abraham and Sarah, and they eat a meal with them. And it's, it's a strange passage because it sort of vacillates between describing them as angels and the Lord. And many believe that this is an appearance not only of God, but the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you look at this this picture, which is a representation of this scene, there are three persons looking at each other in a humble, loving, and I want you to pay attention, like fulfilled way, a non-desperate, non-needy way. And as one commentator wrote, we, we come to experience a gentle invitation to participate in the intimate conversation that is taking place among these three divine figures and to join them around the table. The movement from the Father towards the Son and the movement of both the Son and the Spirit towards the Father then turns, and listen to these words, then turns outward to us to join them. God, who is eternally complete, lacking nothing, extends welcome to you and I to come to the table. Out of self-sufficiency, he gives life and he welcomes us into relationship to share with us, to give to us in a way that we could never repay and in a way where he will never ask you to repay. So my, love, my kids love Tiger's yogurt. Stockton Classic, right? 
And the other, um, that was a few months ago maybe, we're, we're driving to Tigers, and they're all discussing the flavors that they're going to get that day. Oreo? Okay. Well, one of them is going to get, like, sugar-free mango. And I was totally second-guessing my parenting at that point. And they're talking about the flavors, and one of them asked, Dad, what flavor are you going to get? And, like, the one day of the year where I actually was experiencing self-control, I said, I'm probably not going to get anything. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, then let's just not go. There was this sense of, like, well, if we're not all getting it, let's, not, let's just go back home. I was like, no, no, we're going to Tiger's Yogurt. We're, you're going to get yogurt. We get there. One of my children pulls me aside and says, do you want me to pay for this? Right? So it, it's this, like, and I appreciate it because there's this inner sense of fairness that they're trying to work out. They feel that it's imbalanced. They're eating frozen yogurt. I'm not. And so they want to contribute. They want to, they want to pay me back. And I said, no, I'm your dad. This is what I do. And the point is this. I'm not their dependent. And I don't mean to like sound like a baller up here, but I don't need their $2.50. We get the child size, by the way. <laughs> like, I don't need this from them. I'm their father. And my joy is found not in getting from them, but giving to them. How much more? How much more is this true of our God? The Bible tells us has richly blessed us in Christ. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How invested God is already in our good and giving to us. God deserves the glory. Here's the key. God deserves all the glory because he owes us nothing, and yet in his son Jesus Christ, he gives to us everything. If salvation was based on anything that we contribute, and I mean anything, even a fraction of a percent was based on what we give back to God, it would no longer be based on grace. It would be based in part on obligation. I offer God a good life, and in return, he owes me X, Y, Z. But the essence of faith as J.C. Ryle put it, is this. It gives nothing, contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing. It only receives, takes, accepts, grasps, and embraces, sounds like a kid so far, right? The glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. Are you humble enough today for that to be the terms by which you are saved? Are you humble enough today to say, I Bring nothing. Why? So that God alone gets the glory. Let me be pastoral for just a moment. I think a lot of us struggle to glorify God because we've been living like he is somehow obligated to do something in our lives. That he has not held up his end of the bargain and now we're like deeply disappointed in him. Maybe we, we couldn't articulate it that way, like I'm mad at God or I'm disappointed in God, but there's this deep down nagging sense that God has just not come through. I've been a Christian for years, I've been going to church, I've been reading my Bible, I've been doing all the right things, and yet so many wrong things have happened in my life. And yet so many broken things have come into my life. We think, again, I don't know if we would articulate it this way, but I think deep down we think that 
After a certain level of devotion, God owes us. He owes us ease. He owes us health. He owes us success. He owes us a child. He owes us a happy marriage. He owes us the job. He owes us an answer to that specific prayer. All this I've done for him, surely he owes me now. And when we start to think that God owes us, here's the downside. We start to think everyone else owes us too. Can we be honest for a second? I think sometimes Christians are the most entitled people in the world. But I get why. It it actually makes sense. Why? Think about it. Think about the level of devotion and sacrifice that many believers are offering. We give so much of our time. We give our energy. We serve. We give our money. We give and we give and we give and we begin to assume that we are then entitled to certain privileges in return when in reality, Christians should be the least entitled and the most generous people in the world because of who Jesus is. Verse 35 again, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? As you remember from our confession of sin earlier, this is Paul directly quoting from the book of Job. And if you know anything about the book of Job, Job is an individual who suffered a lot of loss in his life. And Job had a serious complaint, and his complaint was this, I have been a righteous person, I have sought to serve the Lord with my life, and now I'm suffering. He thinks God has done him dirty. He thinks that God has been unjust and unfair in his life, and he wants to know why. And God appears to him, not in the still, small voice, but in the whirlwind. He shows up in the tornado. And God rebukes Job for calling into question his fairness and to calling into question God's wisdom. And he says these words, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So this expands uh, our understanding. We can glorify God accurately when we realize he owes us nothing and we own nothing and yet he has given us everything in his son, Jesus Christ. And then Paul finally makes this final appeal to why God alone gets the glory. It's three all-encompassing statements. If you have ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, you know this passage like the back of your hand. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is the source of all things. It's from him. God is the sustainer of all things. All things hold together and have their being through him. And God is the single goal of all life. Everything exists for his praise, for his glory, for his renown, for his reputation, for his name in all of the earth. It all exists for him. And this is to be our controlling purpose. This is our mission statement. This is our vision for life. This is our why for living. Why am I here? Why do I live? Why do I keep getting up in the morning? Why do I keep putting one foot in front of the other? Why do I keep giving when it seems like nothing is coming back? This is the why behind what we think, what we say, and all that we do for God's glory. 
Bernard of Clairvaux developed this idea of how love grows in our lives. And he said, first, the most human and instinctual love is love of ourselves for ourselves. No one has to teach you that. And I want to be really clear, this is the most immature stage of love. Do not let anyone tell you that you need to grow in your love of self. Jesus is delivering you from self-love. Miroslav Volf said the self will lose itself if it only lives in and for itself. It will seek only its own benefits. And the more it seeks its own benefits, the less satisfied it will become. That's the paradox of self-love. The more you fill the self, the more it echoes with the emptiness of unfulfillment. It's your choice if that's what you want. But then secondly, he says the heart is then introduced to God and it becomes love of God for ourselves. I think that this would probably describe a lot of Western Christianity, evangelicalism today. We love God simply for what we get from God. It's the kind of love that exists so that, you know, we love God so that we can feel loved back and we worship God so that we look devout and we serve God because we like the way that it makes us feel. But then... By God's grace, love grows into love of God for God's sake. Where we adore him, we honor him, we glorify him simply for who he is. Not what we get back from him, but because we have learned to marvel at all he is. But here's the grace and the mercy. In our pursuit of loving God, for God's sake, in our pursuit of living for God's glory alone. What is God doing? God is securing our freedom and our joy. Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He is rescuing us from the emptiness of ourself. He is rescuing us from the ongoing painful disappointment of serving idols, and he is drawing us toward the enjoyment that we were created to experience in him. Let me end by asking you a question. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And there are a number of good answers, and there are a lot of Sunday school answers. Well, he died to forgive us from sin and to save us from sin, to rescue us from death, to overcome the powers of evil, to break the curse of sin, to usher in the renewal of all things, and on and on and on. But why did Jesus actually go through with it? Why did Jesus say yes? Well, contrary to popular thought, it was not simply for you. And it wasn't simply for all of us. The ultimate reason, the why behind Jesus' sacrifice was to glorify God. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is secondarily about us and definitely we benefit from it. But it was primarily about God's glory. Hear Jesus' own words in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given to him. And this is eternal life that they know you. 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that, you've, that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The cross is about God's commitment to God's glory. Therefore, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus is to make that our commitment as well. I exist for God's glory. This isn't about me. This is about Christ. And through faith in this Jesus, through being found in him through faith, we too can live for the glory of God. We can be brought low for the glory of God. We can abound for the glory of God. We can experience plenty for the glory of God. We can experience loss for the glory of God. We can have health for the glory of God. We can suffer pain for the glory of God. We can leap for the glory of God. We can barely limp for the glory of God. And we can live a long, happy life for the glory of God. Or if it is God's will, we can die young for the glory of God as well. To him be the glory forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we...